going to um, get into our study. If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. There was a man that was walking along a coastal path, just enjoying the scenery, when um, the rain of the night before had loosened the soil, and the soil suddenly gave way beneath his feet, and he tumbled over the edge of the cliff managed to grab onto a shrub on the side of the cliff, and there he, he dangled, hanging on for dear life. And he did the only thing that anyone else could do in that position, hoping that someone else was walking along that very path, called up there, hello, is anyone up there? And finally, a, a voice answered. He said, yes, I am here. I am the Lord, this voice said. Do you believe I am the Lord? Now, what would you say in that moment? man said, yes, Lord, I, I believe. I, no, I really believe. I believe you're the Lord. But I, I can't hang on much longer. The Lord said, that's all right. I really believe that you have nothing to worry about because I'm here. I'm the Lord. And I will save you. Now all you have to do is let go of the branch. There was a moment's pause, and then the man dangling over the cliff said, is there anyone else there? kind of an example of, uh, of the faith that we're meant to have. We have been um, in the book of Hebrews for some weeks, haven't we? And leading up to chapter 11 has been a, a call to faith. For those that have been listening in the church, and particularly his Jewish audience who were, who were wanting to go back to Judaism, go back to that works-based system, he was calling them to faith and saving faith. And Hebrews 11, as we come to this, this is the great faith chapter. Um, and the Bible has a lot to say about faith. In fact, in this very chapter, uh, just to give you a, a sneak peek, we won't get to this today, in verse 6, in fact, I'll put it on the screen for you, we see the demand of faith. And it says this in Hebrews 11, verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And see, faith is the beginning point. You've got to believe that there is a God and that also you must pursue God. There's a reward for that, ultimately eternal life. You're, you're taking God at his word. That is a trust in God, a belief and a trust in him. But we also learn that faith is derived from the word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we're told this, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives to use the truth of the word of God, because the Holy Spirit is the convictor of all mankind. But it comes through the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. But we also see that there is a design to faith. When you look at 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. So to walk by faith is to live by faith. The way the Christian is to live, the believer is to live, is to live by faith. And I'll clarify what that means in a bit. It doesn't mean a blind faith. And then we see the duty of faith. And actually, this is what the author quoted, and we looked at this last week from Hebrews 10, 38, the just shall live by faith. Uh, two of the verses I just showed you come from the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews has a lot to say about faith, and certainly, as this chapter, you'll see 
This is a remarkable section of scripture, and it's one of the most well-known in the Bible that speaks about faith. And this chapter has all kinds of names. It's been called the Great Faith Chapter. It's been called the Heroes of the Faith Chapter, the Saints Hall of Fame, the Honor Roll of the Old Testament Saints, and even the Westminster Abbey of Scripture. One um, commentator I was reading this week called it the Song of Faith. Whatever the title you like, it is no doubt a, a, a chapter that deserves a title, something to do with faith, because it is a tremendous chapter. And usually it's pulled out and singled out to just a, a, as a study on faith, and you can certainly do that. But we have had the pleasure of leading all the way up to this, going right through the book of Hebrews, right up to this, because it's not unrelated to the rest of the book, is it? Remember, the author is addressing first century Jews, and they've come out of Judaism. And you have to remember what Judaism had turned into, a works-based system. And it was still very difficult, although they grasped some of these principles, it was difficult to, to, to formulate their understanding of those things and to pursue those things with faith and not just works. They weren't sure how that, was, how that worked. They were being taught new covenant principles to come to Christ through faith, but their tendency was trying to, to fit them into this works righteousness system, which is why some of them were thinking about just going back all the way. Now listen, when you look at the Old Testament, God established a faith system in the Old Testament. That's what it was. But it, they had twisted it and turned it to a legalistic works-based system. That's what it had become. And so when he spoke about coming to God in the new and living way, through the sacrifice of Christ, well, their question was naturally, okay, how do I do that? How do I approach? Because in the old covenant, the old system, I approached God through a high priest, a high priest that I knew, a high priest that I could physically touch and see who lived among us. And he would take the blood of a goat, literal blood, and he would walk into a literal holy of holies, and he would sprinkle the blood. He, that's how I approached God. But in this new way, you're telling me that I have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Where, where is that? There is no holiest. There is no literal blood of Jesus that I carry. How do I do these things? And the author had told them in verse 22 of chapter uh, 10 to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. It's a matter of faith. You must believe in the blood of Jesus. You must believe that he's granted you access to God. And that was always the case in the Old Testament. Faith was always the principle of redemption that God had used, and that's why the author closed last week. We looked at Habakkuk, uh, the quote from Habakkuk, which is in verse 38 of chapter 10. Now the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk was an Old Testament prophet, and he even said, the just live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So this is not something new. Faith in this sense, was always active in the Old Testament. And that's the reason for this amazing chapter. What he's going to do, he's going to go into the Old Testament, and he's going to draw from all these uh, examples of men and, and women to demonstrate that faith was always a working principle. And notice as well that faith produces hope. We looked at that in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hope and faith are connected, and it is hope which produces the perseverance unnecessary. And, you know, the author believed optimistically in the perseverance of his people. He 
And he said in verse 39, and this is what we closed with that last week, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition or to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul, those who have that persevering faith to the end. So what keeps us from falling away? We looked at this last week, drawing away into apostasy, into unbelief. It's faith that believes to the end. Several people used it in our prayer meeting today. Saving faith, that's what it's called. Saving faith. And it's faith in the promises of God. That's what it is. The author doesn't tell us to dig deep within ourselves, right? Just just believe it, right? Dig down deep. Muster up the energy and strength. You know, believe with all your strength. It's not that. He says, don't believe in yourself. That's what the world will tell you to do. Believe in yourself. No, you keep trusting in the, in the promises of God. Trusting in him for the strength to endure. The world will tell you that faith is uh, optimistic thinking. Think positively. Think these things into existence. Or sentimentality. You know, just, just uh, for example, I, I, you know, I love musicals. I love all the modern musicals that have come out, but I'm a, a big fan of the old ones and the, you know, the great old Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. And there's a great old musical called Oklahoma. But Oklahoma has this phrase in this song, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. That's sentimentality. I've got a feeling. And that's what the world says. You just got to feel it. No, it's not positive thinking. That's not faith. Neither is faith a blind faith, as I've even heard Christians say. And they based it off that verse we looked at. Oh, I walk by faith, not by sight. The blind faith. No, no. No, no. We don't walk blindly see with the eyes of faith. The world has what's called a natural faith. Now, when I say the world, we all have a natural faith. You are all demonstrating that natural faith, even right now, as you demonstrate faith in the chair you're sitting in, <laughs> right? That chair is going to hold you up. But even more than that, we demonstrate faith in some very interesting areas. If you think about it, every single time you turn on the tap, you're trusting that what comes out is good enough to drink you live in Los Angeles, we don't drink it, okay? We don't trust it. But here, you've got good tasting water. But what's living in those pipes? I don't know. I don't know what that water passes over, but I drink it. You, you trust and have faith in the, the order that you just placed with your waiter, that that food will come out prepared exactly like sometimes you just don't want to know, right? I don't know what they did back there. And just eat it. But, but some of the greatest faith we place in is, think about everyone, anyone have been under surgery, Right? You have yourself placed on the table and cut open. And you're not awake for it, thank the Lord. But you're hoping that someone digging around inside and moving parts around here and there knows how to do all that and that they're putting it all back the right way. That is a tremendous amount of faith. That's natural faith. We all exercise a natural faith. That's not the biblical definition of faith. So I don't want you to get confused with that. Neither is that the kind of faith that saves. It's not a saving faith. So to clear up the confusion, we're going to take a moment to just look at these first three verses. The author doesn't just launch into, here's heroes of the faith, but he says, let me tell you what true saving faith is. And so today's sermon is, what is faith? Well, to know what faith is, we must look to Scripture. Scripture defines faith for us. And today, if you're taking notes, there's just three points we're going to look at. Faith's nature, faith's testimony, and faith's understanding. We'll go through those in a bit. But let me just read the passage today. It's Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. 
It says this, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. We pray that you would be with us, Lord, that your spirit, the illuminator of truth, will guide us into truth, Lord, as we study this uh, very important subject of faith and what saving faith is. So be with us today, Lord. Open up our hearts for what you want us to learn today, that we might apply these truths to our lives for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you're taking notes and you like to outline, the first point is faith's nature. We're going to see faith's nature in verse 1 here. Now let's look at it. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, there are several different versions of this verse, and I'm sure some of you are holding those versions in your hand today. And it's based upon the renderings of two words. The first word is this word substance. At least that's how it is in the New King James. Substance is hypostasis, okay? And it's got a bevy of meanings here, and so I put them all up there for you, depending on the context. It's that which stands under, so it could be a support or a foundation. It's something firm or, or actual or, or real, okay, so something tangible. It's a, a substantial quality of a person or a thing. And also, it can just simply mean confidence or firm trust or assurance. Now, all those definitions are very related, aren't they? I mean, you can kind of see how they all sort of mean the same thing. And this word has already been used twice in Hebrew, so maybe to help understand why it's translated a certain way here, let's look at those two ways it's already been used. The first place is in Hebrews chapter 1. So just turn there real briefly. It's chapter 1, verse 3. And in chapter 1, verse 3, it begins with God, speaking about God uh, and how he spoke to prophets and through prophets in times past, but now that now he's communicating through his son. And in verse 3, it's speaking of Jesus Christ, who, being the brightness of his glory, so that's God's glory, in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, the word hypostasis there is person, okay? person. And person is that definition that we looked at, the quality of a person or thing. Jesus Christ is the exact representation or likeness of God. That's why it was translated person rather than assurance. Makes sense? We also see that same word in chapter 3, verse 14. Look at chapter 3, and in verse 14, here's this word again. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Well, there it's translated confidence, the same uh, word. And, and again, that makes sense there because we're speaking about uh, pursuing till the end Christ. The example was in the Old Testament. Israel didn't do that. They denied, Christ, uh, denied God. They were faithless. They had hardened their hearts, and so they did not enter God's rest. But he says, but we, we will, if we confidently believe in and pursue God. And many different words are rendered here depending on your translation. You might have substance like 
life Bible has here. You might have confidence. You might even have certainty. Anyone have that? Or, or reality or assurance. And assurance is actually the most common one. Most of the translations translate this assurance, and I think that's the, that idea is best because it's less confusing. The idea is that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Sure and certain. So that's the first point here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, okay? The assurance of things hoped for. Now we're going to see a bunch of examples from the Old Testament that illustrate this kind of faith. There are 16 people that are mentioned by name in Hebrews 11, and then others that are mentioned in a general sense, okay? But the Old Testament saints, they had a solid uh, certainty about the unseen future. Those are the things hoped for, the assurance of things they believed in that which was unseen above and beyond that which was seen. That's the whole idea. And that is not how man puts his faith in things here today. Man places his faith in things that are tangible, things that you, you can uh, understand with your senses, what you can see and taste and touch and smell. But your senses, your senses may lie. My father told me uh, on a university campus that he went to, there was a notorious story. And there was a tower on the campus. And on the top of the tower, everyone walking around the campus could see this diving board had been fastened to the edge of the tower so that it came out off the edge of the tower. And on the end of the diving board was fastened a chair. And everyone understood what that was about. There was a certain fraternity on campus that to anyone initiated into the fraternity was blindfolded and had to walk blindfolded on that plank on that diving board and sit themselves in the chair. And everyone could see it. And everyone would go, what? That is crazy. And people would say, oh no, they do it all the time. In fact, there's you know initiates that we're going to go through this this week as well. And that's what they would do. They would blindfold these guys before they entered the rooftop. And they would take them up to the rooftop and blindfolded they could feel the wind on their faces. They could feel the sun Right, they could hear the birds. Their senses were telling them, you're outside. And then they would place their foot up onto the plank. Here's the plank. You feel it? Yeah. Okay, step on. Okay, both feet are on the plank. Can you feel it? Yes, I can feel it. He could feel the wood beneath his feet. And he was told to shuffle out on that plank. And if he just went forward, he would bump himself into the chair. And then all he had to do was turn himself around and be seated. And if he did that successfully and didn't fall off to his death, <laughs> he would be in the fraternity. And I just couldn't imagine. These guys would do, they would shuffle themselves out, and then they would turn around, they'd sit in this chair, and then they would tell them to come on back, straight back, and as soon as they got them off, they'd lower them down, and then they'd take them back down, and then they would unblindfold them. Well, what was happening in reality is they were taking them to the rooftop, but they had affixed on top of the roof a separate plank that was only about a foot off the floor. And that separate plank just went to a, a chair. And there was just a mattress that was underneath that. So if you happened to fall that whole foot, you would just fall onto a mattress. But everybody blindfolded by the wind on their faces and the sound of the birds and being outside believed them to be walking on that plank on the edge of the building. Which anyone with any common, common sense would have said, you know, what headmaster would let that happen? But they believed it. The point is, your senses can lie to you. We don't trust our senses. The man of God must put his faith in something more dependable and lasting than your own senses. And let me just say this, that includes your sight. 
What do we place our trust in? The future promises of God. The future promises of God. And just to give you a sneak peek, turn to Hebrews 11, verse 13. Hebrews 11, verse 13. Speaking of some of the people he's already mentioned up to this point, he says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, there's assurance, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So, they died, not ever having received the promises. Why? Because they were future promises. But because they were assured of those promises, they embraced them. How do you embrace promises that are yet future? Do you see? Because they became a reality for them. And because they were a reality, they were able to pursue them, even though they never actually received the promises. That was Old Testament saints and their acts of faith. New Testament saints, we exercise our faith in the same way. It's in, we live with a certainty about the future promises of God, a certainty about unseen hopes and promises. Now, I'm going to make a comment, and please don't take this wrong way, but we saw a lot of people come to faith during lockdowns, didn't we? And I just, I love that because it showed us God was still at work. When churches were getting closed, God was still doing a work in the hearts of people, and he was drawing himself to them. But many people have made a, a, a phrase, something like this, that, that, well, I just saw the things that were happening around me, and it kind of made me go, oh, something's happened. And that is great because God used that and brought you to faith. But can I just say that unless you put your faith now into the future promises of God, what's going to keep you going? Because your circumstances around you can change. All this can change. Everything you see around you can change, and it can change fast. We saw that. Instead, we now change our focus to the future promises of God, the things that are unseen, the things that we understand. Remember when Jesus had to prove himself to Thomas, doubting Thomas? He said, look, put your hand on my side. You know, look at the holes. Like, it's me. And he said, you know, you, you believe because you saw. But what do you say? Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. See, it is, it is believing and trusting wholeheartedly in the future promises of God. That's what we must do. So what are some of those promises? What are some of those things that are, are hoped for for us, but we are assured of? Well, one of them is Christ's return. You know, we talked about this on the women's study the other night. I joined for just a bit. Um, but we, we said, I said, you know, whatever your end-time view, we all agree that, that we're going to see Christ. <laughs> he's, he's coming uh, again. And, and that is a future hope. Titus 2.13 says this, that we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, you, you, you are assured of the things that are hoped for, and, and he even calls it our blessed hope. Your faith must be placed 100% in the truth, the certainty. I'm assured of his return, and that just gives me that lasting hope. Christ will return. The second thing, another thing is the, the resurrection. And I think of 1 Peter 1, uh, 3. And when I say the resurrection, I mean the resurrection of, of all believers. That, that when we, we, we die and these bodies will die, they don't stay dead. There is a, a resurrection of believers to new life. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Paul really elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't he? But there were some people who were saying, oh, there is no such thing as a resurrection. And he was saying, that's ridiculous, because, because Christ rose from the dead. So if he didn't rise from the dead, then, then our faith is futile. He said, no, Christ rose from the dead, and because he did, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is a down payment of that uh, future inheritance for us. You will rise again. And that's why he ends that whole chapter by saying, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, meaning we're not all going to die, but we will all be changed. You see, that's the future resurrection. That's something I hold on to and I look forward to. I'm assured of in my soul because of the word of God. It's a future promise for all believers. Another thing that's really closely related to that is your glorification. Anyone looking forward to that? Anyone looking forward to a body that won't sin? being glorified, looking like Christ? I am. And 1 John 3, 2 to 3 speaks of this, again, in the context of our hope. Beloved, now we are children of God, and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have that hope in him, then it's also motivation to live a pure life here. Because, you know, we're, 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 we know that God's going to finish the work. But, we, you know, we're, we're trying to go as that, that direction as well, aren't we? I mean, that's, that's what's keeping me going. I don't go the opposite direction and say, ah, God will turn me around. You know, he'll do the work. I'll look like Jesus one day. Oh, no, no. The fact that I'm going to look like Jesus is what encourages me to try to look like Jesus even now. And, and sometimes I don't look as much like Jesus on some days as I do on other days, right? We, we have sinned. We still struggle, and we have to got to ask the Holy Spirit to help us through those things. That is faith to believe in the unseen things. How do we, how do we have that? How do we have that? We're told this in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's really interesting. Your eye hasn't seen these things. Your ear really hasn't heard these things. And you really couldn't even conjure these things up yourselves. The things which God has prepared for those who love him. How do we understand those things? Well, the answer comes in the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 2.10. But God has revealed them to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. You believe those things because the Holy Spirit has made those things real to you. That's why our hope as Christians is not a vague and tenuous hope. It's a not a cross your fingers and wish hope. Our faith is the assurance of things hoped for because it's given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's a divine thing. In fact, Romans 5, 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The world does not have this kind of faith. And therefore, they don't have this kind of hope. The hope they have is a wishful thinking kind of hope. The faith and hope are linked. Do you see that? The world says that we can believe things into existence. If you um, just have faith in something hard enough, you can make that a reality. That's not biblical faith. That's called nonsense. Faith doesn't make things happen. Faith is believing in something that God will make happen. That's natural faith of the world. That's what they have. It, this is supernatural faith. And humans are wired to believe in the natural things. They see, taste, hear, and touch. That's the natural man. You cannot 
operate with that kind of faith that's necessary to believe in God because that's a supernatural faith. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, in that same context, it says this, that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So, faith in the future promises of God, that's a spiritual gift. We can have assurance of things hoped for. That's faith. That's one part of it. It goes a step further. Look at the other part of it. It's the evidence of things not seen. Evidence of things not seen. Elenkos uh, is the word. Elenkos. That by which a thing is proved or tested. That by which a thing is proved or tested. Or a conviction. All right? So your Bible might say conviction or certain. That's the idea. Being certain of what we... Uh, do not see. Most translations, I think, render the word conviction. So it's the it's the evidence or it's the proof of things that can't be seen. Because we're assured of our future hope, and our future is is absolutely certain, then these unthings, uh, unseen things are given a reality in our lives. That's kind of the idea. So true saving faith um, takes the assurance of things hoped for, and he acts upon those things. Does that make sense? Meaning, it says, because I'm assured these things are true, I'm going to live accordingly. There's action that takes place in our lives. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 to 9 says this. Whom having not seen, you love. Who's that speaking of? He's speaking of Jesus. You've not seen him, but you love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your, your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, this is how this works. You haven't seen Christ, but you believe in him, and because you believe him, look at you've got an inexpressible joy. You, you live and believe to the salvation of your souls in something, in someone you've never seen. That's a supernatural thing. That's unbelievable. And because we believe in him so wholeheartedly and so assuredly, again, not a pie-in-the-sky kind of wishful thinking, but so assuredly then we can live through the eyes of faith. Now, we do do this to some extent with things. Uh, this just happened, in fact, this past week. There was a couple that got married. Now, no doubt, for months and months and months, as they talked about the wedding and they planned the wedding, there were, they were operating on the eyes of faith. What begins to happen is that you begin to see it, even though it hasn't happened. You can see the colors in that room. You can see the chairs setting up. You can see... You can picture what that wedding dance is going to be like. You, all those things begin to come in your mind. And you, in, in a way, you, you're making them a reality in your mind. Uh, buying a new home. Anyone done that? Where you kind of you, you purchase a home and now you're starting to decorate it. Now you're picturing what the Christmas tree is going to look like in the corner or what, what the kids are going to be doing over here, what this room. And you start to make it a reality even though you don't live there yet. How about going on a holiday? You've done that too? You've booked the holiday. And boy, months in advance, you're picturing, oh man, I just, I'm out there, I'm sipping on a drink with an umbrella in it, whatever it is you're thinking about, but you begin to, to live with the eyes of faith, you begin to make it a reality is the point, do, your, do you do those things with the promises of God, do you see yourself embracing your Savior, do you picture yourself walking on the streets of gold, you see, we live in such a way that, that we're supposed to begin making those things a reality in our lives. The, the early church, the early uh, church fathers, 
really live with that perspective. They really saw Christ. They really looked toward heaven. They looked toward those things, and they lived that way. The future is made present to us through the eyes of faith. That's the idea there. So it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. I make it real. I make it living, and, and I, I prove it in how I live here and now. There was a, a, a man who was martyred, going through a, a, a church history book, a man who was martyred. He was, he was pulled before the judges, and he said, you know, you can, you know, can do what you want, but you know, I'm going to be going to the, the Father. And he said, you think a man like you and what we're going to do, you're going to go to the Father? You're going to go to him in glory? He goes, oh, no, no, I didn't say that. I don't, I don't think. I know it. And he died knowing it. That's conviction. That's truth, understanding. He was assured of his future. So that's the first part, faith's nature. In verse 2, we see faith's testimony. If we live that way, what does that do? For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. Testimony there is the uh, word martureo, where we get our, our word martyr from. So when you speak of someone who's been martyred for their faith, you probably assume that means died for their faith. The word actually has the connotation of that they were a testimony, they were a witness for their faith. Their death was a witness for their faith. That's the word. It's a witness or a testimony or a good report. The elders or the forefathers, or namely the examples that we're going to see in the Old Testament here, they gained a good testimony, a good report. They made a good name for themselves. But ultimately, it was proof of their faith that was um, displayed before God. It's divine approval. When we live that way, we're not only proving our, our faith to ourselves, that's real and that's lasting, but also to God. God sees that. He, there's my faithful servant right there. Psalm 33, verse uh, six, verse six and nine says this. I'm in the wrong place. Sorry. There we go. By the word of God, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of His mouth. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. That's by faith. By faith, we believe in those those things. Let me take you to a passage in Scripture in Daniel. Now I know we're going to look at a lot of Old Testament saints. And um, this one is not one that's mentioned. Daniel. In, in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, we see these three friends of Daniel. And they are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're probably better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the names they were given um, after, uh, after they were taken into captivity. So these guys were taken into Babylon. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar is, is their new uh, king. And uh, these guys... Um, these guys are going to be forced to bow down to the king. He has made this giant gold statue, and uh, he wants them to bow down every time they hear all this music play, and, um, and they refuse to do that. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knows these guys. He knows Daniel. So in, in chapter 3, he comes to them, and he says this to them in verse uh, 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? So, here he confronts them with the things that they can see. 
well, I'm the king. You're in my hands. Uh, there's this image of this God that I've made for you, but where is your God? Your God's unseen. So here they're confronted with all the things. And now look at the, the, the threat. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. An expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men who were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore... Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste, and he spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace, and he spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps and administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of the fire was not on them. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Now you got to look at everything that was real in front of them. This fiery furnace heated to the point where it burned the men uh, that were carrying them to the furnace. And yet, at the end of it all, God saved them. He chose to save them. But at the end of it all, Nebuchadnezzar re realized what, it, what he had seen. These men trusted in their unseen god more than in the things that they could see. They could see I was threatening them. They could see this fiery furnace. They could see all these things, and yet they trusted in him. That is this kind of faith, and that is this kind of testimony. The testimony had a massive effect on King Nebuchadnezzar, and they proved that their faith was an active and real faith. Their lives gave testimony to that fact. That is the life that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have that kind of testimony that our faith is real, that it isn't easily shaken. The third point, going back to our passage in Hebrews 11, is faith's understanding. Now, he's going to give his real first example here, but he does this for a reason. Look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the, words were, the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, notice the author here says, by faith we, we understand 
to this. Now, he's talking to the Jews. He's lumping them in uh, with, with him. He's saying, listen, I, I've been trying to explain to you faith. Let me just share you with you this. You already exhibit this kind of faith. By faith, he says, we, collectively, we believe, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now, the word worlds there is not cosmos to mean this world. That world is ion, which means universe, or the agents. That is everything. Okay? They believe that the, the, the God they couldn't see made everything that they could see. They weren't there to see his act of creating. They knew and they accepted that truth from his word. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They read that and they believed that. And it goes on, doesn't it? You know, Let there be light. There was light. So God created everything, we're told, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And that's what it says here. Everything was framed so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God didn't have something to start with. They were made from nothing. And this is where that verse comes into play, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The Lord, word of the Lord. It's just by the breath of his mouth. When he just uttered these words, everything was made. And we believe in a literal six-day creation. We believe that by faith. We trust God's word. We trust the word of God. Now, when you look at something like this, the origin of the universe, that's been a debate for, for a long time, right? People have debated where, where did everything come from. But both those that believe in creation and those that believe in some, some form of evolution, both have faith. Both believe in faith. The creationists read God's word. We trust God's account of the beginning, and we operate with a faith that is spiritually discerned. The evolutionists operate with a natural faith, and their starting point is to look for an explanation that's outside of God. Now, I'm going to show you a video here uh, in a moment. You can get transferred over. There's a uh, Michael Denton. He's a scientist. Now, he's actually, he, he believes life does reflect a designer. He, he believes in some kind of designer but he believes in evolution. He would call himself an evolutionist. He believes in directed evolution. Um, and I want you to just hear his answer to this question that it begins with about creation. He, he does uh, not believe in sort of like a Big Bang kind of a thing, but neither can he go all the way with creation, although he believes that, that life has some kind of design. And this is exactly how uh, faith works. And I just want you to hear what he says. We'll get the volume set up and Science can actually say neither 
science is wedded to a naturalistic conception of the world. His, his issue is where he begins. That, that's his issue. I've got to see the world just through a natural view. I believe in some kind of design by life, but God would never break his own uh, rules. So when you read the Bible and you see the sun stopping for a while, right? When you see the seas splitting, when you see Jesus multiplying food or rising from the dead, that's God breaking all of his laws. Why would he do any of those things? Why would he do those things? Because he can. <laughs> I heard it right over there. And that's really the thing. Why cannot the lawgiver do what he wants, break his laws when he wants and when he needs to, to accomplish his purposes? It's certain that there are laws that govern uh, the, the universe and they're in motion and God is the one that established those things but, but at the same time you are talking about an infinite God that has intruded into human history which he created ultimately for the purpose of sending a savior to redeem mankind so uh, you, you, you want to kind of come up with an explanation for where the universe came from and miss the whole picture <laughs> right? God reached into time he reached into humanity and that in itself, that in itself breaks the law, right? He created all those things. And so you, you see they start in the wrong uh, place. The evolutionary theories, and his is one of them as well, are in a constant state of flux. They are always and ever changing. The discovery of the origin of the universe by naturalistic means, and that's what he's saying, is beyond the scope of man's ability. Cannot discover it through naturalistic means means or scientific investigation it requires faith trust in the word of god not blind faith because certainly we look at the same exact evidence that evolutionists look we don't come with our own fossils we don't go oh well, look at my fossil <laughs> we we all look at the same things but we all start from a different place they would look at that and say well i need to explain that naturally and we can look at that and say well i can explain that from the bible so i could look at the grand canyon and i can see wow what an is all created really rapidly from a flood. And evolution would go, oh no, look at this millions of years, look at all these layers. And so we could just look at the same evidence with completely different eyes. We look and see um, nature and the world and the creation upholding God's word, and they see those things exactly the opposite way. So, faith, biblical faith. We must have this kind of faith to believe in, even the creation of the worlds. And the Jews had that kind of faith. And the author is trying to point this to them. Listen, you're already demonstrating this kind of faith in God's word. You want to continue to do this. If you're willing to be taught by the word of God, then we can know the truth. And it's a sure and it's a proven truth. You know, people are like the piano mice who lived all their lives in the grand piano. Have you ever heard that story? But it was the, uh, this, live inside this piano and the music of the instrument it would come to them in their little piano world. And it would fill all the dark spaces with the sound and uh, the harmony. And at first, the mice, they were impressed by it. They would draw comfort from it and, and wonder from the thought that there was some, some unseen player who made the music invisible to them, but, but above and yet, yet, yet close. And they loved to think of this great player whom they couldn't see. And then one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano 
and returned from his adventure very thoughtful. So that I found out how the music works. You see, there are all these strings, these strings of various lengths, graduated lengths, and they are all taut, and they're trembling, and they're vibrating, and from them comes all this sound and music. It's, it's the wires. And so we have to um, revise all of our old beliefs. None but the most conservative could any longer believe in the unseen player. Later on, another explorer carried the explanation further. He went up further and said, oh, no, no, it's hammers. Hammers are now the secret. Great numbers of hammers that dance all along the strings, and they, they create all the sounds that we hear. It's a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical world. And the unseen player came to be thought of as a, as a myth through the, through the, the pianist continued. Yeah, that's our world today. We have people venturing out, and they come back with a higher way of thinking. Well, I, I believe it's uh, this. I, I've seen this through my, my scientific exploration. And everyone comes back with a new theory. But we know that there, there is an unseen player. And he is involved in creation. And we, we live every day in the eyes of faith in this invisible God. And so to end today, I just wanted to do something a little bit different. There, if you were with us in our Revelation study, and this is some five, six years ago now, we listened to Karen Heimbuck each time we um, studied a chapter of Revelation. She memorized the entire book of Revelation. Memorized the whole thing. I saw her do it live. And her and her husband had, uh, had orchestrated to her reciting of Revelation um, a score that was played by the London Symphony Orchestra. And it just brings it to life. And I want to just ask you to do this. Turn to Revelation 21. And I just want you to, with the music that goes with this, okay, to read Revelation 21 along with her as she recites. Just follow along. Because I want you to begin to look at your future with the eyes of faith. All right? Because you go to movies sometimes, and if you've ever seen, well, I used to be involved in movies. You guys know that. Um, and you see a hard copy, and it's just people delivering lines, all right? There's no sound effects, there's no music, and it's just kind of bland. Going, ah. But then you go see it with a score, and all of a sudden it comes to life, and right? there's emotion, and there's feeling there. Um, well, they've done that with the Bible here, just to help give it, give it that, this is your future, all right? Think about how glorious this is going to be. So let's listen to Revelation 21 and 22 as Karen. It's going to be quite a few minutes. We're reading two chapters here. Just follow along, and as you do, I want you to do it with the eyes of faith. This, this is your future.
walking the streets? Were you seeing the new Jerusalem? Were you seeing the, the stones, the precious stones? That's walking with the eyes of faith. That's the saving faith, though. That's what keeps us going forward, believing into the end, believing in the sure and true promises of God. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for, Lord, uh, your wonderful promises to us. Lord, that we will see you one day. Lord, that we will live with you forever in eternity. There will be no more pain or sorrow, no death, no sin. of gold. Amazing. Lord, we pray that we would not forget these truths, Lord, but that we would remind ourselves of them often, and that we would have that persevering faith true to the end. Lord, we love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing a closing song?